0: Hello, and welcome back to What's Next, a podcast exploring the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. As digital natives, searching the internet has become second nature to us. Sifting through text, images, or audio has gotten much easier over time, but searching effectively through video is still a challenge. Our portfolio company, VidRover, is solving that problem. And today we have Joe Ellis, their CEO and founder, here with us in studio to talk about the implications of video search. We'll also be joined by my colleague, Jacob Lowenstein, who is our resident expert on media technology. He'll be jumping in with some questions along with me. So I guess to start, Joe, tell us a little bit about VidRover. How did you get started? What what does the company do?
1: Cool, yeah. So... VidRover is a video search and understanding platform. We help media companies, networks, broadcasters, digital publishers, um, either index their large video archives or real-time video streams. So for example, some of our customers are sending us television channels. We're then providing metadata across that video asset. So we'll say, this is when this person appears on screen. This is when some text is on screen. This is what's visually appearing the topics that they're talking about um, and information like that. And then that gets fed in back into a structured knowledge graph, indexed into our search solution. And then we provide user interfaces that can either be launched on the front of owned and operated websites or internally within these companies to help their editors and producers uh, find the right small granular clip of video for whatever granular search query they're doing.
0: Okay. And how did you get started doing that? What got you interested in this space?
1: Yeah. So I've been working on this problem for a really long time, actually, much longer than VidRover. So I I started my grad school at Columbia University uh, working under the supervision of Professor Shifu Cheng. Uh, and so NewsRover was a platform. We actually built it in the Columbia Research Facility, processed 100 hours of television news content today. So we just stored it. We actually had antennas in CRF, just downloading content, digitizing it, and then pumping it into a storage drive. We would then run these algorithms over it. And after we had all this different information and stuff. uh, We then build a search interface and just launched a website and allowed anyone basically to just search through anything that's happened over those hundred hours of television news across any day. And where did you get access to the actual video? Oh, we we stole it. So we just, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, we actually plugged cables into um, like the wall at Columbia or just got it over the air. Okay. And stole it being a, like kind of a funny word. But yeah, we were just doing research. So it was all like we didn't show it to anyone. We didn't sell it anywhere. Obviously, we were just grad students at Columbia trying to build a search solution that could help you find anything that appeared in video um, that was on television.
2: Were there trends that were going on at the time that really made you focus on video? Why did video grab your attention?
1: Yeah, I think back in 2010, 2012, I was watching a ton of YouTube. Um, and so I was just excited. I was like, wait, this is awesome oftentimes I would go in and do like a super deep dive on YouTube where I remember the first one I did and Right before I went to grad school was the JFK assassination, and so I had never really understood or heard anything about it. And I went through this deep dive documentary and just spent four hours on YouTube looking up all this stuff, and it was awesome because there's all this content. But it was also a pain because it was really hard to find what I was looking for. Um, so decided, hey, I I think we could make this solution a little bit better. Like we could probably help people do their JFK deep dives in one hour instead of four hours. How many people think you're a VR company because your so name many. ends with oh. VR? uh so okay so i'll tell the the vr name story so news rover this is how we started the company we named it news rover because we were processing news videos and the mars rover had popped up just when we started so this stupid rover was like appearing on every video that was searched and we're like oh we can call it news rover we're roving over the news we had this little logo it was like a little newspaper that was a rover it's ridiculous um so then decided to start the company we're like oh Grad students were like, oh, News Rover, we'll just keep the name. And everyone said, no, that's stupid because you do a lot of other stuff. Like we process other types of video than news. You can't pigeonhole yourself. So we said, okay, cool. We'll do Video Rover. So went online, tried to buy Video Rover. That was like $3 million for a domain name. So I said, okay, well, Video Rover is not. Uh, so tried Vid Rover, Vidrover, V-I-D-R-O-V-E-R, $500,000. So try again. This Cut off the e and went to VIDROVR and that was eight dollars. So ended up incorporating Vidrover. Um, then about a week later, probably the first person asked me, "Hey, are you guys a VR company?"
0: <laughs> so how about transitioning from you know a grad school researcher and academic environment to actually becoming an entrepreneur and, and productizing this?
1: Yeah. And so a couple of things I think that I did were really useful and looking back were valuable. So I did internships at IBM. Um, I was at TJ Watson and then I also worked at Google while I was at Columbia. And both those things made me much better engineers than I was just being a researcher. So actually working in a production environment, being able to ship code that worked um, and was valuable was really, really important. So after I learned that skill being in kind of industry, uh, started thinking about, hey, like, all of the stuff that we built is really valuable. But ultimately, if I just finish my PhD, it's gonna get turned off. So we'll just go into the server room, probably turn it off, no one else knows how to run it. Um, a bunch of my colleagues were graduating that I had worked on it with. And so started thinking about, you know, I think this is valuable. We think that there's media companies both in New York City and around the world that could really take advantage of this type of technology. Uh, so why don't we try to spin it out and actually build a useful solution that people will use. And Columbia patented the technology as well. So that was also So kind of a bit of an onus. Um, So having that patent in our back pocket as well, knowing that this was somewhat defensible, um, was great for us, and it kind of helped us move the company forward. Okay. So who are your customers today, and what are they using Vidrover for? Most of them are broadcasters or networks. So they're folks that have large amounts of television content that they need to quickly and seamlessly transition to digital. So what they do is they send that television content directly through our platform. We provide them detailed metadata about each particular section of the video, um, provide them start and end points where they can clip those videos out, titles, people that are appearing and all the different metadata to make it searchable. And then one, we send that data to them, their engineers and technical teams can leverage that to build new products, or that video actually comes into our search platform. So then they can actually leverage our search interfaces, our search APIs, um, and our search knowledge graph as well. Got
0: it. So give me some examples of the type of types of metadata that you're collecting and able to present to them.
1: So if you say send us a television channel, we can present you things like, hey, this is the text that on screen. We think it might be a great title for this video. These are the different people that are appearing within the video content. Visually, this is appearing. For an example, is North Korea. We have all these videos coming through our platform about this North Korea crisis. Um, this is a section of video where the ballistic missile is appearing. This is a section of video about the demilitarized zone. Um, and then they can use those to then publish that out to their digital content. It
2: sounds like at the core of this or part of the core of this is pretty broad type of image recognition, basically understanding what's in the video. But there could be so many things in a news clip, right? But you're not necessarily specializing for one type of object. So how do you handle covering such a broad yeah. range of content that you have to identify?
1: Yeah, it's an awesome question. So what we actually specialize in what I did a lot at Columbia is, broadly speaking, multimodal machine learning. Um, and video is really great for that. So instead of, say, image recognition, a lot of times all you have is the image content that is truly an image recognition problem. There's no other way to solve it. Uh, what you can do with video is vast. So there's a transcript that's available. We leverage the transcript. Uh, there's on-screen text that's available. And although that's like a visual recognition problem, it's a totally different thing than detecting a ballistic missile on screen, right? We leverage a traditional image recognition, facial recognition, and then also other multimodal machine learning methods to do person discovery on these video assets. So for example, if Susan Collins is appearing on screen. Whether or not we know exactly who Susan Collins is, uh, her name might appear on screen below that. The producer or the person, the anchor might say, now we're going to hear from Susan Collins on blank. And so we automatically leverage all these cues to better determine that this person is probably Susan Collins. Now we know what she looks like. Every other time she appears in a video in this particular library, we'll be able to find her. So what's interesting about that is There is not a ton of supervised data available. And so leveraging all of these modalities in unison and kind of combining them together is a bit of a semi-supervised learning approach, um, which I think is really powerful. And that's a lot of the work that I did at Columbia. And I think that's kind of the way that we should be developing video search solutions. The other really multimodal method that we leverage is automatically assigning hashtags that are appearing across Twitter from the Twitter firehose onto video content. So we do that by taking a hashtag, taking all of the tweets that are correlated with that hashtag, hashtag. Extracting images, extracting videos, and extracting text content, and then building multimodal representations of each of those things. So say, hey, this is the text representation that we have of this particular hashtag. This is the patterns visually that we think are appearing. Um, and then we apply those over videos within your video archive or real-time streams. So that automatically you'll be able to say, okay, I think this video would actually work really well in this particular space on Twitter. So...
2: Given your approach, what are the alternatives that you're competing against? And how do you convince your customers to go with you versus the alternatives? And that could be both alternatives using machine
1: learning, but also, I don't know, just yeah. human beings tagging information. So manual is always kind of the baseline alternative that we are competing against. That's what people are doing today. Um, and effectively, everyone wants to not do it manually. Things have to work well enough that It takes them less time and it's an efficiency than if they have to go back and correct things. Uh, And so when you talk to customers, that's always kind of the question. They'll be like, oh, we tried this last year. It only got us 60% of the way there. The extra 20% that it took us to correct it actually made it a longer, worse process for us. So we're always working to push the accuracy of either our video clipping or the metadata generation so that we can get to a point where we're delivering an efficiency to the company. When you actually do stuff in specific domains and build algorithms for specific domains, like for us, broadcast and post-production content, we're able to to leverage the structure of that domain and develop an ontology that might work a little bit better in that specific instance. the example I like to give is I'm a big San Diego Padres fan. So anyone listening, they can pity me because we've been terrible the last 10 years. But uh, like Google Photos, it's an awesome solution. I use it to organize all of the photos in my phone. Then I went to Padres games. And I could send them to my friends. Amazing, right? Uh, that's interesting for me as a consumer. But if you are an enterprise user, say the Padres, that type of data is actually not that interesting baseball they know that's all of the photos that they have within their whole repository right they need a much more granular ontology so this is a curveball this is tony gwen hitting a line drive to left field that type of information so based on the structure of the domain, um, you should be building ontologies like that. And so that's what we do. We build domain-specific ontologies that work really, really well um, in these, these different areas and verticals.
2: And where they where the camo uniforms? Can Vidrover <laughs> determine that they're not
1: military? or is, Have we uh, reached we actually that sophistication? Know, <laughs> the, the camo is so good on the Padres uniforms, we don't even know they're there.
0: <laughs> um, so one of the things that I, I wonder about hearing you talk about this is – this idea of, of censorship and this idea of recognizing content that companies don't want on their platforms. And I feel like those systems fall down consistently and don't work as well as we would like. So maybe break that down for us. Like what's going wrong and why aren't these systems able to recognize obviously content that might be
1: controversial yeah, or
0: illegal or?
1: Yeah, know. it's a great question. So I'll, talk first as a company how we deal with this um, and then i'll talk about my personal views on it so as a company in many ways we've kind of punted on this because we go direct to the media companies or the content creators themselves so we're almost always working with pre-vetted really strong content so we don't worry that much about it because people that are giving us stuff know that they like their stuff and they want to make it searchable and want the world to find it that's what we help them do It's really, really hard when you're going beyond violence to some contextual level of what is not okay, I guess, to post online or, or what should be censored to figure that out. And the, the reason is a lot of it is outside of the video itself, right? So violence is actually pretty easy to detect. Nudity is easy to detect. There's really good algorithms in these big companies that do that. But contextually maybe this is, during this time, this type of post is very very not good. So like during the Me Too movement, maybe there's particular posts that are especially more sensitive now than they would have been two years ago and should be removed from some of these sites. But their sensitivity. Is changing because of the contextual environment that we live in and that's really hard for algorithms to understand so as the goals shift in each of these things the algorithms have to move too and it's hard to stay ahead of culture
0: so earlier in the conversation we were talking about who your customers are but what have you learned about uh, challenges to adoption from customers who
1: for whatever reason don't want to buy your product I think one thing we've found, uh, this is probably true for most tech startups, but it's really important to have an internal champion. And good internal champions we've found tend to be highly technical and have really strong product visions where what we're doing helps them build that out. Other challenges that we have is, like I talked a little bit about before, a lot of people have punted on making their videos available on platform just because they haven't seen a ton of views over the past five to six years. And all of those views are being generated from YouTube or Facebook. That's kind of a catch 22 in many ways for us. Um, One, it's good because there's not a lot of work going in there. So if we can convince people to just, hey, turn it all over to us, we'll make it work for you. Just don't worry about it. It's not really taking over anyone's jobs or anything like that. But at the same time, it's hard to make people think that this is something that will work. This is something that um, can really change the way people interact with our content.
0: I want to key in on that platform discussion a little bit because in addition to all of the different types of video that's being created, whether it's, you know, professional or user generated or whatever, there's also an explosion of platforms. It sounds like you work primarily with broadcast, but then, you know, you've got owned and operated channels, you've got third party channels like YouTube, you've got social channels like Facebook and Snap and all of those. So how do you work across
1: all of those different? Yes, We'll just take YouTube, for example. So what we do is we actually have a direct integration into their platform. So if you're the content owner and you own a YouTube channel, you own all the rights to that content um, within that channel. So then if you give us your account credentials, we'll actually log in. You use their APIs to pull all the video assets from that channel down onto our platform, process them, index them, and can provide either metadata back into YouTube to make them more searchable across your YouTube platform or help you launch a YouTube-like search interface on your O&O so that people can actually go to your O&O as well as YouTube to find the videos that you're creating that they love.
2: In terms of um, competition, especially among the big platforms, besides her literally locking you out from accessing those videos or that data? Is there anything anyone can do to stop you from training on video data? Can they put anything in the video files? Can they put anything in the frames that disrupt how you yeah, are able so to train?
1: A couple of things there. Um, one is, the answer is kind of no. If it's available, it's available. But broadly speaking, um, we only work on, say, YouTube with customers that have agreed to integrate like give us access to the YouTube content sure. because they own the rights to those video files, so then we can pull them in. So you're not scraping the trillions of hours of
0: YouTube content. Uh, no, that's that would be tough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, when I think about that too, I, I think about each of the different types of platforms. There's different types of content that should live on them. Yeah. So there's YouTube-specific content, there's Facebook-specific content. Are there things that you're doing to help customers develop the right type of content for the right platform?
1: So this is something that publishers are talking about a ton. There's oftentimes specific teams within each of these companies that do only that platform, and they know all the intricacies of the platform, both from a technical perspective and from like a what-content-works-best perspective. Our goal would be to, for companies like this, make your library as malleable as possible so that all of the people on those teams can all plug into one source and do whatever they want with it super quickly so that you can get the right piece of content into those places at the right time.
0: One of the other subjects that I I think or one of the scariest trends in video right now is this idea of deep fakes right so people using technology to create fake videos where uh, someone is represented on someone else's face or they're saying something that they didn't actually yeah. say so are you able to spot or defend against those videos like what what are the technical challenges
1: there yeah so it's a super hard technical problem. We actually have not started tackling it at Vidrover yet. I know there's some interesting work going on at Columbia looking at, um, some of this stuff. So how can you detect these and is there some level of censorship? Um, what's going on there? But yeah, I, it, it's not something that we've looked at, although it's something that I am interested in. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing like how we are going to be able to combat that type of stuff over the next year to, to two years. And I do know there's, there's a lot of research going on around universities about what's the best way to do that.
2: And I was just wondering, can your, tool, can VidRover be used to enable modification of those videos? So for example, if I know what's in the video, can I make it more
1: easily swap things out? That's an interesting question. So yes and no. The first most obvious way that that could actually be used would be like on lower thirds and stuff like that. So if there's any text on screen, de-scrambling it and posting other pieces of text, because we have localization boxes on basically everything that comes out of the platform. Uh, so it would be a good first layer put into anything like that. Now I, my head is spinning and I have all these ideas about stuff that I could potentially do. But yeah, so it'd be like a good first layer that, that we could feed into something, like some type of algorithms like that.
2: Got it. And I just because we're kind of hitting on this general topic, so... Are there, is there anything else that your customers have been like really screaming for, pounding on the door for from Vidrover given your core competency? So we talked about uh, specific insights for platforms? Maybe there's fake detection. Anything else on the wish list that you're hearing a lot?
1: So social is one. So we're really happy with this hashtag push because a lot of people are interested in publishing to social and how can we drive as much video views from social as possible. Um, and then the other one is, I'll be honest, we're seeing a lot of traction in search. So when we started pitching this idea a year ago, I will say that platform search was much, much less of an idea, um, and now it's becoming more important. The other thing that we've heard from folks is GDPR coming in is actually very interesting. So because so many recommendation algorithms are based on user behavior, not necessarily content-based algorithms that do this recommendation, there's going to be potentially over the next year to two years much more of a need for that content-based recommendation instead of just user-based click recommendation because it's unclear um, how data can be tracked and things like that. So that's another area that I think will be providing real value and will be useful for us moving forward.
2: There's a big problem on the measurement side when you're trying to understand whether or not people are talking about your product, whether, you know, an ad is impactful in getting people to talk about your product. It seems like Vidrover might be able, particularly for, you know, social videos that the average person posts, be able to help solve that problem. Have people been asking you for your help
1: with that? Definitely. So there's two things there that I think are interesting. One is, If it's micro-targeting, I think we would be really helpful for that. So that's actually analyzing a single piece of video content, understanding different sentiment, emotion, the way people are feeling about a particular product, and then making an action off of that. If it's trying to find macro trends around products, I tend to think that just doing text processing is the better way to go. Um, it's much less expensive, and you can get a really nice sampling of the distribution just using, say, text or tweets to get the overall sentiment around a product or the overall sentiment of a product in a region. That's probably sufficient. But if you're looking at, say, like a person level or a tweet level, taking into account all the modalities that exist within that tweet leads to a much more accurate um, experience. At that point, it becomes a, a real cost-benefit analysis. If we know we have a much higher level of certainty as to how this person feels about a particular product. What action can we take that will offset the cost of running that, which is much more expensive than any text processing.
0: Um, so what are your thoughts on personalization just in terms of where it is today and how important it is?
1: Yeah. So this is a complicated question. I think personalization today does deliver what people want, right? They can always deliver videos that will keep people watching and keep them on site. And in an ad-driven world, that's exactly what media publishers want. That's exactly what all, all these folks that we work with want. Like, it makes a ton of sense. The question is, after you've watched these, you know, 10 or 20 minutes of videos, Do you think that you got real value from those videos? And did you care about or will you remember that watching experience? And I think that's an open question. I was at South by Southwest this year and and heard Evan Williams talk about Medium. And that's one of the things that he spoke about a lot when they were moving to a subscription model. So he said, you know, we started by basically marketing the articles that had the most engagement to show people Things that we thought would spur subscriptions. A lot of people are watching this, or a lot of people are actually logging onto this piece of text or reading this article. Um, this is probably going to be something that's going to spur subscriptions. They found that wasn't the case. What they found was they hired a bunch of editors in specific verticals. They editors trolled through a bunch of different articles, found the ones they thought were the best, and then those were the ones that they marketed out, whether or not they had a bunch of views. And that actually did spur subscriptions. So it's like this: there's a bit of a dichotomy there. We're spending time online because of these personalization algorithms are tailored to feed us stuff that will keep us in front of them. But after that, we don't really associate real value with that. Like we wouldn't just decide, okay, I would pay for this piece of content. Um, And so I think that's the interesting dichotomy out at South by Southwest. There's a lot of discussion around that. So we're thinking about that. And I think search is a way that... We can kind of shift that paradigm and and help help move us forward in that space.
0: Okay, so we've talked a lot about what VidRover does, but taking a step back, what are some of the bigger
1: trends that are converging in this point in the video world? So one of the reasons I started the company, and I thought what was really interesting was, especially in the 2016 election, we are getting more information from video than we ever have before, right? For Before, in the previous times, a lot of this was like text or based on newspapers, blah blah blah. But now as we see video as one of the most informative sources where people are actually understanding the world today through video, it's becoming really important that people can find what they're looking for in that video content. And I think today, most of the video that people watch online are either recommended to them via some type of news feed or a personalization algorithm. Uh, And what we really care about at VidRover and what I think is really important is shifting that paradigm into the point where people can actually do informative search queries to find that granular clip of video that's going to answer what they're looking for. Do
2: you think that people will increasingly search for video or do you think that this fits into the back end of how video is curated for them because you now can sort of segment
1: and collect more data about what's in that video it's a great question so i think when you talk to media companies today lots of people have punted on like the video search bar on their websites because it's really hard to do so people don't use it because it doesn't work i think our goal is to shift that paradigm. Uh, but I will say that we've had a lot of buy-in from a editor or producer per- perspective so that they can find the video content that's useful because that's their job, right? They don't they, they'll spend all of that time actually finding the right video clip. Um, whereas the user wants that presented to them really quickly and seamlessly. That's not been possible before, um but that's where we're going.
2: Got it. And what about the democratization of creating and cutting together video? So are there lots of people out there that are trying to take video and splice it together? Like, is this going to make it easier for your amateur and sort of semi-professional creator to do their work better?
1: Yeah. So it's a huge workflow problem. So even with like the, the broadcasters we work with, when they send us, when television channels are sent to our platform, typically they have tons of people watching those channels and using a platform like maybe snappy tv or something like that to do the actual clipping itself uh, with our algorithms because we're able to identify frame start and endpoints provide all this detailed metadata we can actually kind of i guess set those up for all of those editors just boom 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 um, clip them out really quickly and seamlessly so it becomes a much less of a manual process and ultimately that's it's somewhat low level that um what what's going on there and we want People doing higher level tasks. So more uh, intelligent curation and things like that. And we want to open up the workforce within these journalistic institutions to be able to do that um, with our platform. Okay. So what's
0: one controversial opinion that you have that's really strongly held? Come back to me. I'll give it to you at the end. I
1: was Who thinking. Killed Who killed Kennedy? Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I honestly don't know. I don't like chocolate. That's the most controversial opinion I could have (laughs) had.
0: Awesome. Um, Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, good luck with what you're building.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much for the time, guys. I really appreciate you having me.
0: Thanks again for listening to What's Next. We'll be releasing a new episode every other week this summer, so be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com slash podcast. Next time, I'll be chatting with Allison Cliff Jennings from our portfolio company, Filament. So be sure to tune in for that in a couple of weeks. I'm your host, Ryan Lawler. And this episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King and Janaki Mehta with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. And Samsung Next is always on the hunt for brilliant new companies to partner with. You can find us on Twitter at Samsung Next, or you can shoot us an email at podcast at samsungnext.com. Until next time.